a real conversation and some hard truths. Gangs, drugs, and guns, giving a voice to those willing to sacrifice. We have stories that need to be told. We have lessons that need to be taught. Protect and serve. Welcome to The Quiet Professional. Hey everybody, it's Nathan Romus with you, and we got a good guest today. Um, we're going to talk to Kim Bolin of the Vancouver Sun. She's a longtime gang reporter, uh, talks about things from gangs to organized crime, probably one of the most well-known reporters on this subject matter. Welcome, Kim. Thanks for having me. Uh, and just so people are aware, in case the audio sounds slightly different, uh, Kim's calling in from somewhere else, I assume Vancouver, but uh, that's why it might sound a little different, and hopefully we don't have any technical issues. So, um, yeah, so thanks for coming, Kim. Um, I'm super excited to talk to you because uh, I read a lot of your articles, and obviously it fits right in the realm of what our team does as the gang suppression team for the Edmonton Police. Great, I'm looking forward to chatting as well. Yeah, so uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, um, what, where you grew up, how you became a journalist? I grew up on Vancouver Island uh, here in BC, and I've been at the Vancouver Sun for 38 years. A long, long time, if you can believe it. Probably uh, my time at the Sun is longer than most police officers around have been alive. Uh, but I did a master's degree in journalism at the University of Western Ontario and started at the Sun immediately after that in 1984. But I was always interested in journalism, even as a kid. I, I think it was you know, being a young teen and watching the Watergate trials live on TV and, uh, you know, seeing the power of the media. We didn't have, obviously, the internet then, right? So to watch sort of these hearings interrupting regular programming, you know, you kind of got into it and you saw that this was really amazing that journalists could break a story that essentially led to the resignation of the President of the United States. So, I was always uh, very keenly interested in journalism, worked on student papers, uh, worked on newspapers all the way through my university degrees and started at what was then a very big paper as soon as I graduated. Wow. That's quite a journey you're on. And um, in your profession, is there like, you know, we have ranks here. Is there anything in journalism? Do you move up anywhere? Or is there anything that you uh, kind of step toward? <laughs> we or? always yeah, that's always uh, the joke, right? I, I say in 38 years, I've never been promoted. I've never applied for a promotion. I've never been promoted, right? So no, we don't have ranks. Uh, sometimes people want to become editors, right? That's technically a higher ranking job, but then you're not doing you know, the uh, investigative work uh, and writing the stories, which is what I love to do. So I have stayed where I am doing what I'm doing. However, I have sort of developed expertise on the crime beat and so I'm, I'm left uh, much to my own devices. I'm a beat reporter, so I deliver the stories that I think are important after getting the approval of editors, and I, I do that pretty well every day. So I have a lot of autonomy. Other journalists, uh, you know, maybe are assigned by the city desk every day, so they wouldn't have as much freedom to do the stories that I do. So I consider it, you know, a promotion in a way, but really the job description, the job classification is the same as the job I started out with in 1984. So what does it look like if you, so do you come up with a topic, you go to the boss and um, I imagine it's maybe what people see in movies, but I know our job is not what people see in movies, so I don't want to make assumptions, but can you tell us what's the process like 
to get something from an idea to writing it on paper or on the internet now? Well, the way news organizations work and, you know, the bigger ones have a more variety of reporters in the newsroom. You know, when you look at the Globe and Mail or CBC, for example, and they will have a designated investigative team. Those journalists will only work on larger projects, so they're not out there pounding the pavement and doing day-to-day stories as they happen. As a beat reporter, my job is somewhat different. I want to be on top of the big crime stories of the day. So I do a combination of breaking news stories, like say a high-level gangster is is shot to death. I, I will usually start getting information about that right away. Often it's in the evenings or on the weekends when I'm normally not on shift. So I usually email an editor and say, hey, this happened. It's breaking. I'm going to cover it. I already know who it is, you know, because police often don't release that information for quite some time. So expect a file from me shortly. The good news is that now we also, you know, before we were just a printed newspaper. And so the deadlines were relatively early. Once something happened after deadline, you basically didn't publish it for another day. Now I can get a story up online, I can start informing the public, and I can start to get reaction and more information in from the community, right? So it's really a 24-hour news cycle now, and that's how I would cover a breaking story. In addition to that, when you're on the beat, you know, you come across issues uh, that are out there, you know, charges not getting laid in gun cases, for example. Why is that happening? then I might do an enterprise feature that takes me a little bit more time. That I would suggest to my editor, I'd get approval to go ahead and I would start trying to get information, you know, going going to government officials, going to police agencies, uh, going to prosecutors to see if I can't piece together a story uh, that gives more context to an issue that I'm running into on a daily basis. So that's a different kind of story. Uh, sometimes I, I like to do unsolved uh, murder stories as well because, you know, there are so many cases that get a lot of attention at the time of a murder, but then a year later, two years later, there's just no information and the case remains unsolved. So I try to pick a few of those every year and dig into them, try to do a bigger feature on what happened, how the police investigation is going. Maybe it's stalled completely and what I'm writing could be helpful to that investigation. Talk to grieving family members. Uh, even when the person killed is involved in gangs or organized crime, I always try to give a voice to the family because, you know, they're suffering just as much as a family would be if their uh, victim hadn't been involved in gangs or organized crime. So I often build, I think, quite good relationships with family members regardless of what uh, the person who in their family who died was up to at the time. Uh, then I try to do and not, I don't get as much time to do this, but longer-term investigations. We often do those off the side of our desk, where you maybe file freedom of information requests or access information requests at the federal level to get stats and data on issues that are even bigger than the smaller ones I identified for our kind of shorter enterprise story. So it's a really wide-ranging job. And you know what? It's really, really interesting, but it's also a lot of work. Um, just like police, we're often called out on our time off Uh, to cover things, you know, and it can be fairly draining if, for example, as we've seen here on the Lower Mainland, you have, you know, a series of murders very close together. You're pretty well working 24-7 for long stretches. So are you on call 24-7 right now that's in your current position? Well, not officially. I mean, officially, I have a collective agreement that says I work these many days and just 
these many hours, but, um, you know, because I want to do my job well, um, if something happens off hours, I cover it. For sure I do. And I have a great relationship with the general public. I have a lot of sources that are, you know, in my phone as, you know, this guy, that mm-hmm. guy, no names, right? But I've got constantly gotten really good information from them. So if they send me a message, I'm like, okay, this is serious. I need to follow this up. That's not to say, you know, I'm, you know, extreme about it. If I'm, you know, away for the weekend as I just was in Montreal and a story breaks out, I might send out a few messages, try and get a bit, a bit of information, but I will pass that on to my city desk where another reporter who's in the newsroom and actually on shift uh, can handle the information or add it to the story that they're doing. So it goes both ways, but uh, I'm usually not one to not go out and do a story regardless of when it happens, if it's a significant story on my beat. So, uh, and on that, you kind of said how you work with some sources. Uh, What do you think makes some of these people want to talk to you as opposed to talking to the police or anyone else that they might want to go to? Yeah, that's really interesting. And I've pondered that a lot over the years. I think that some people who are involved in the underworld, in gangs, or on the periphery, girlfriends, friends, family members, they obviously don't feel comfortable reaching out to police. And yet they want to talk to someone who's in the know about what might be going on. You know, and even with police, like people don't know how to contact or talk to police, right? Mm -hmm. You're not going to call 911 or the non-emergency number to say, gee, I'm really concerned about a situation involving my gang-involved brother or boyfriend, right? It's hard. It's awkward. So I think people see me as someone who has knowledge about what's happening, so they're not calling me cold or messaging me cold. And they also think I'm someone that will follow up on the information because they've seen some of the stories that I do. But I also have a lot of people who just contact me because they want to talk, right? I mean, as I'm sure you know from the people you talked out there, there's a lot of people involved in this world that regret it, but mm-hmm. it's very hard to get out once they're in. And um, I used to sort of joke to my friends that, yeah, for whatever reason, these guys see me as a normal person because many of my journalist friends wouldn't see me as a normal person. You know, I'm kind of the only normal person they know because I'm not involved in gangs or organized crime. Right. And I'm also not the police. Yeah. You're so kind of in that middle ground. We're kind of in the middle ground. You exactly, tell some crazy exactly. stories to your everyday family and friends and that's not a part of their reality uh, and then but on the opposite spectrum end of the spectrum there the gang members are seeing you as the only kind of uh, foundation in their life the consistent person that you know maybe doesn't judge them maybe uh, talks to them like a normal human being that's right. And I, I think everyone should be spoken to as a normal human being. That's not to say some of the people that haven't reached out to me at other points in time have expressed how much they despise me and think I should be killed, etc. Right. But sometimes people come come around and recognize you're just doing your job. I mean, that's what I say to them. I'm just doing my job. And I've learned not to engage, you know, in kind of the downward spiral of negative back and forth with people. Right. If um, they disagree, you know, well, hey, you're welcome to disagree. This is what I'm trying to write. This is why I'm trying to write it. Um, but I always have the conversation, right? Because uh, that's what I'm trying to do. And there's many times where I can't use the information that's being given to me at that point in time in my story. But it becomes part of my memory. And sometimes it becomes part of a file that I keep, you know, online in my 
uh, laptop. Um, you know, and there, there are so many times where I've been given information by a gangster who then is later killed. Right. And mm-hmm. I think back to that conversation I had with them. And sometimes I use what they told me earlier in the story when they're killed. And, um, I don't know. I find it uh, like my obligation to, to try and put more context into what happened. Um, I've had some gang members who've said, "Oh, I'd like to give you a letter that you can use if I'm if I'm killed, right?" And I, I, I found that you know uh, chilling in a way. But these guys are living with the specter of dying at any moment in time, yes. and they again want to reach out and talk to someone uh, who. Yeah, like they, they often hate me, but they still kind of trust me. You know, it's, it's, I'm sure police have that with their sources as well. Yeah, I would say some of the people that we've talked to, um, you know, you're not talking to them because you have a charge you're holding over their head. Uh, a lot of it is just you have a good relationship with people. You treat them a certain way and they're like, hey, you know, uh, there's, well, there's almost endless amount of reasons why they might talk to you, but that's kind of how you get it started is just treat you like a normal human being um, to a degree, right? They're still involved in criminal activity and doing things that you don't condone. But um, without a lot of these people, you wouldn't be able to solve a lot of the crimes or know half the things. You probably wouldn't know most of the things that are going on. Yeah, very, very true, right? And, you know, you get to know people, you get to recognize them. Sometimes you're at an event and you see that person with another person that you didn't know they were associated with. So it does allow you to sort of have this background knowledge that you can then apply to your everyday work. And in my case, the work is writing stories to explain gangs and organized crime to the broader community. So um, I wanted to ask as well, uh, in your job, there's maybe these are all the same kind of term, they have the same meaning, but is there a difference between a journalist and a reporter? And just to kind of give you an idea of how I've always thought of it is um, for a journalist is maybe somebody who writes things more in depth or you're in the field and you're there, you know, you see people go over to Afghanistan and write about war and they're there for weeks or months and they're just writing very in depth, almost like short stories. A reporter is the person who shows up, gets two lines, fills you in in the morning news with the, you know, the 30 seconds they give, the attention for uh, on that specific topic. So is there any sort of difference between them or am I just totally thinking there is? Yeah, no, there really is. Like a reporter is a subset of journalism, right? A reporter is one specific job within journalism. Uh, You know, and the general public, we need to do a better job as journalists of explaining how things work to the general public, right? Because we, you know, a reporter, I'm a reporter. Right. I can do, as I mentioned, breaking stories that might be shorter, that might only have a couple of lines in them because I'm trying to get it filed and up online for my readers really fast. Right. There may not be room in the paper tomorrow for a bigger story on that topic. So I want to get whatever I can in with the space that I'm allotted. Um, A journalist would also include editors and photographers and sort of other jobs within journalism, you know, kind of like the difference between, you know, police and a patrol constable, right? Like you're out doing one job within general policing. That's how I would describe it. Um, mm-hmm. But what what you're saying is, you know, again, a war correspondent would be, you know, like a beat reporter. They're there specifically to cover the war and the conflict. A lot of those war correspondents 
would be writing some shorter breaking news stories on what happened in Ukraine today, what Zelensky just said, for example, then they might do like a weekend contextual story that would be a couple of thousand words on the conflict overall and how it's going. So they would do both, right? Um, We have what we call general assignment reporters. They are doing mostly the daily breaking stories. John Horrigan, the premier of BC, is making a speech. They're covering that and getting a story up online as quickly as possible. Then we might have, we also have in journalism, particularly in print journalism, uh, you know, pundits known as columnists, right? So they are writing their opinions. Journalists are not supposed to be generally writing their opinions unless they're a specific columnist or pundit where it's their job to, you know, give more context, but also put a spin on it. What do they think about the government's new policy? What do they think about the decriminalization of um, possession of controlled sub- substances, right? How, do you so, get, how did they get that job, though? Are you just it's the, usually a the specific job person? that's posted. Uh, no, that would be good. <laughs> <laughs> I personally, you know, think that unfortunately the line is too blurred and the general public doesn't understand the difference between columnists and reporters. So I almost wish that columnists didn't exist, right? But that's Mm-hmm. You know, because I'm out there, you know, just trying to convey information and then they see an opinion piece and the general public doesn't understand how their job is different than my job and that I'm not giving you my opinion. I'm quoting experts. I'm quoting police. I'm quoting family members. Uh, you know, I'm not saying whether I agree with what any person in my story is saying. Right. It's just my job to present the information to you, hopefully in an interesting and con- you know way with context. Yeah, and you know, it's it's kind of interesting when you read some of the news nowadays, especially, well, I'll say since I joined police uh, or policing, some of the stuff I read, I go, wow, I was actually at that scene and that's not what happened or this went, you know, this one, this piece of, or we'll say this thing occurred before that thing. And um, so when we talk about like the truth in reporting or journalism, um even outside of giving an opinion, it, in my view, it looks like there is still a way, even in presenting the facts, um, there's still a way that you can contort things, make things appear a certain way, use just certain language, and it kind of comes across as, oh, it means this and not this, but also depends on the reader. Uh, you know, Two people can look at the same thing and see different things or understand it differently. No, for sure. And I I see that. And again, I think that, well, one of the obstacles I face as a journalist, especially if you're looking at a breaking news story, is that police will not give out very much information. It's Mm -hmm. so much different in Canada than it is in the United States, where they will lay out events as uh, they gather the information. They're not worried about, oh, the Crown's going to be mad down the road that we said this in public, you know what I mean, which is unfortunately a real concern amongst policing agencies in Canada. And I understand the concern, but surely there is a way to provide accurate information about timelines, for example, after after a murder, after a big crime has been committed, so that the journalists can accurately portray what happened. We do the best we can. We go to scenes. We interview, you know, bystanders, right? Mm-hmm. And they say, well, this is what I saw. That's what I saw. And much like police, when you're interviewing witnesses, they don't all say they saw the same thing, right? So if there is inaccuracy in what we initially report, especially about a big crime, it's not willful inaccuracy. We're doing our best to gather the information. 
as it uh, is relayed to us from witnesses or people uh, at the scene. And sometimes it's based on what they've heard. Now, you have a, an additional complexity there now with social media, right? Because, um, you know, long ago, before really people were so active on social media, you know, it might take us several hours to hear about a shooting or a crime. Some of us had um, scanners in our newsroom, and that was a way, you know, they, oh, the police scanner's saying this or that, let's go check it out, right? But that, we don't really have that now. So we often learn about a major police incident from Twitter. Honestly, I'm at the shopping mall and someone just shot someone. And then I'll try and message that person. Oh, what do you see? Can you tell me what you see? Do you have any photos? So we're really kind of scrambling to gather information as quickly as we can and as best as we can. It doesn't mean it's always perfect or accurate, you know. And, um, and then again, we'll get whatever we get from police. And obviously we include that. Yeah, there's a an Instagram account that uh, I think is really good. It's the the Dirty Surrey. It's I'm gonna bastardize this name here, but it's like six Ademics or. Oh, don't talk to me about that guy. No. <laughs> okay. Well, he. I, we just know as police, we see there's videos posted on there of a shooting seconds after it happened. So people are sending him stuff, and it just uh, that was one of the questions I kind of wanted to get to with you was. What are the effects of social media on your job? Well, just to con- like he is not a journalist. He will say he's a journalist, but he also takes a lot of his photos and stuff that are copyrighted from news organizations, including mine. Right. But he's always been somewhat aligned with the Brothers Keepers gang. Uh, oh, okay. So I find that I find that pretty troubling and you know he's posted a lot of pretty horrible things against me so perhaps i'm perhaps i'm biased in some <laughs> ways right um including things that are relatively threatened okay. uh so you know we also have to be responsible like if we've got photos of an actual shooting and the body going down we're probably not going to post that because we don't want to interfere with the police investigation um he sometimes will put a name out of someone who was shot and then it's not that person at all but in the meantime, you know, people are going crazy over, um, you know, what the, the false information that's been reported, right? So, you know, yes, that is a problem, I'm sure, just as it, as it's a problem for police to have all this stuff splashed across the Internet. Um, you know, and again, I, I understand that, that police have criticisms of journalists, but no journalists I know are trying to deliberately mislead. Mm-hmm. especially when it comes to a police investigation or or trying to inhibit or interfere with that police investigation. But then you have a lot of people that are maybe aligned with one faction in the gang war. They're willing to kind of put anything up. And that's really problematic. And it's problematic for us. Like I do see some some media might quote an Instagram account. Oh, this Instagram account is saying this is the guy. Uh but I happen to know that's not true. So I'm not going to put that in, you know, unless I get it verified from additional sources, right? So, you know, on one hand, these accounts are out there. On the other hand, journalists, journalists, the members of, members of the general public, and obviously police as well, have to be pretty careful with what they choose to believe or highlight. Yeah, it seems like social media has basically taken away the accountability of things. You can post whatever you like, whenever you like. and That's right if enough people are watching you, that now becomes the truth to some extent. Um, yeah, it's actually quite a dangerous world when you think about it. Uh, and if they're posting the wrong information, yeah, it creates a lot of 
uh, could create a lot of hurt and a lot of angst among everybody, police, family members, and whoever's looking at that stuff. Well, no, and, and it can also like pose a real danger because uh, like out here, it's uh, often really inflamed the gang war, right? Uh, what's being posted on there, right? And, and uh, you know, it's not my job to do that. And sometimes I, I get, you know, my sources contacting me. Oh, why aren't you doing this? He's saying that, you know. And I have to really explain, look, I can't put that up. That's unverified information. I actually don't think it's accurate. Uh, but it's also, I am different. I have to maintain a, a certain standards and level of integrity that online, you know, and we post online too, but, you know, we can't, sort of get down into the muck the way that they do. Um, And I don't know, like a lot of times, you know, um, I mean, he's posted threats against people. Like I screenshot a lot of stuff because you'll notice that there are a lot of these accounts. You can't find archives, right? Mm -hmm. It's very fleeting, like something's posted and then it's gone two days later or 24 hours later. So it kind of, uh, you know, meets the objective of stirring the pot without creating any kind of record that if someone wants to file a lawsuit against them or there were criminal charges that might be warranted because of threats being issued, you can't find the material later on. I do a lot of screenshotting. (laughs) Do you think overall social media has done better for your world or do you think it's kind of hindered things? Because now there's even people who might just outright not trust the media uh, wholly, right? And they don't believe in CBC or CNN or, and then they're like, well, what are all these random Instagram accounts? So it kind of makes it, it's very uh, convoluted as to who you're supposed to look at and, and listen to. And I mean, maybe people look at their kids now and they just see, you get most of your news off of social media. You're not watching an actual reporter who's there live. It's just whatever essentially gossip comes across your way and, because, you know, you click on something specific um, enough times, it just keeps showing you more of that. So, No, that's true. But, I mean, we're also all on social media, right? We use the same platforms to try and highlight work that we think is accurate and that we hope people read. And, uh, you know, I have young people in my life who, oh, did you hear see this on Reddit? And I'm like, track back and see what the source of that is. And then it'll be one of my stories, right, that people are then having a Reddit discussion about. So. We just have to make sure that, you know, we are occupying those platforms as well with real and accurate news and information. And, you know, we're still really in the infancy of this, you know, change, this sweeping change in how people get their news. So I do think that over time it may level out and that people that are constantly, you know, putting false information out will will be held to a higher standard, will be held to account uh, for that. And the other thing, we, we do need young people to be educated on how to check the accuracy of information. It's something I teach journalism as well, and I make sure my students understand that because, mm-hmm. again, as, as future journalists, they have to understand that just because something's there on Instagram and might even look like a legitimate account, you have to track back and make sure that you have a different source that proves that that's accurate information. You can't just take it at face value. So. I think we'll, I think things will improve. And overall, you know, social media has been amazing. I'm sure police find the same thing, right? You know, uh, because you do get a lot more information from people that maybe wouldn't call a number 
to yes. lead or wouldn't call crime stoppers, wouldn't call, you know, a gang task force to provide information, but they, they do put it up online in some form or context, right? Well, I think for a while that maybe since the start of social media and then where we are now, it kind of changed people's thinking to, I need the quick and the dirty, give me the headline, the first two or three sentences. If it doesn't capture the attention, I'm on to the next thing. But now I think there's a lot of, um, we'll say like this podcast, for example, or you look at other people like Joe Rogan, he's doing four hour podcasts, Jocko. Uh, people are realizing, hey, I can really get in deep with all this stuff. I can listen to full, complete thoughts. And people are interested in that. So hopefully it's moving that direction more so and people kind of consume better ideas and not just, you know, the little gossip uh, headlines here and there. Well, and, you know, like, uh, I don't want to suggest that everything that's posted on some of these accounts is inaccurate because some of it's not, right? Uh, But it might be unverified at the time it's posted on that account. And also, you know, again, as, as, you know, the so-called mainstream media, we don't want to be inflaming things by posting rhetoric um, or a video that shows a violent act being committed that might bring retaliation really quickly. Now, sometimes um, when uh, it's some of those social media accounts we believe have led to violence, I include that in my stories or my investigations because that is interesting. You know, when we had, um, you know, I wrote probably it was early 2020, I think it was pre-pandemic, like a big investigative piece on, you know, these local guys that are linked to bigger gangs that were rapping, you know, as they do in Chicago or elsewhere, that they were going to go kill this guy or that guy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, posting these on Instagram and, um, you know, it was leading to more violence, right? So it was really quite an interesting story because it was a new thing here um, whereby, you know, their threats were being carried out against each other through music on Instagram. Yeah, the message is in there. The delivery's in the in the words. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one other thing I was kind of curious about, and you're probably one of the best people to talk about this, is experts. So when media talks of, uh, to somebody, usually it's a, a professor or something, They'll say, oh, you know, police use of force, this, that, and the other thing. Then they're coming back saying, oh, we talked to our expert and this person's a professor, so believe what they're saying. Is there any, when experts are incorporated into these uh, news articles, is there any sort of vetting or can they just call anybody an expert or how do you get these people? Well, we get them a variety of ways, honestly, right? And and again, I, I have to get people to consider the difference between breaking news and a story that has to be produced that day by a specific deadline to one that you have more time to work on and produce where you're maybe more thoughtful and nuanced in how you present it, right? Like imagine if you, you know, crime happened at 10 a.m. and you had to solve it by four, right? Like that's kind of what daily journalism can be about. So you know, to be fair to the reporters that are doing that, and I have to do it on occasion, if you're trying to get an expert to put something in context, you phone around. You find a list of academics who've maybe commented previously on this by just doing, you know, going through archives, right? You create that list. You might have some of those people in your file. 
you know, maybe there's five people that would be good to talk to about this, but you can only reach one of them. So that's the one you're quoting in your story. So I do think sometimes, um, like I, my policy is I'm not going to quote an academic that I think knows more, knows less about this topic than I do, because why, you know, why is that relevant for my readers? You know what I mean? But, but a, a lot of journalists who might be doing a crime story, use of force story that day, they're not beat reporters. They haven't done, you know, 20 other stories just like that one. So they're just phoning who they can get to deliver a story by the deadline that day. Again, they're not trying to be, you know, inaccurate in any way. And police may not agree. But if someone is a PhD in criminology and has done research in this area, that would be a reasonable person for us to comment. Now, you also should try and get the police agency or the union to comment so that, you know, there are different perspectives. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, a lot of our newsrooms are a lot smaller than they used to be. There's a lot fewer reporters trying to do the work. And, uh, you know, they're, you don't want to use the term under the gun when you're talking about crime stories, but they're kind of under the gun <laughs> to deliver a story by deadline. So, you know, it may seem unfair to the police who are reading it, but the journalists I know are doing their best to present an accurate story with some context by deadline. I always find, uh, like, I'd say the biggest thing right now is use of force. That's uh, yeah, the big I thing know. that comes up I with know. police. But sometimes the use of force expert is a person who looks like they haven't seen the light of day. So you're like, well, what do you know about use of force when you've never been in it? You've never had to do that. You've never been in a fight. Um, but you know, you read a lot of books and now you're totally true matters. So yeah, that's where I think on the policing side of things, we always see that and we're like, what the hell are they talking to this guy about? Well, because, and you know, I'll get back to something I said earlier, which in many instances, police won't comment themselves. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, anytime I, I get a call from a police source saying, why did you quote so-and-so? Cause we also use retired police a lot too, because then they can comment, right? They don't have any obligation to their organization. Um, And I just will say, look, you know, hey, if you want to give me a comment that refutes what the other guy said, I'll put it in my story, but I'm going to, I know you won't give it to me, right? Because you'll be in trouble. So um, it's too bad there isn't more openness in policing. I think it would bode well for everyone. It would, you know, put up um, a better defense for police who feel they've been unfairly tarnished or treated by the media. Mm-hmm. And it would give the media and the public more context when we're, I mean, we have cases out here where someone's been murdered and we can't even get the name of the person who's been murdered weeks afterwards, you know, and, oh, but we'd like help with the investigation. Well, yeah. maybe if you told us who was killed, the public would be able to provide you with some information, right? Yeah, I agree. And I mean, that's why I'm, you know, we're taking upon us to do this podcast and, uh, try and have some more real conversations, not the politically correct, the sterile stuff. That's basically, that's all that's put out there by the police right now. So um, one thing, uh, if we can, I'd like to get into an article that you wrote. Uh, This would have been May of 2021. Uh, This is probably one of the most concise but comprehensive guides to uh, the gang world and how things are kind of, planned to how they're carried out uh people need to read this if they want to know about gangs and how they operate obviously a lot of this stuff has kind of been around the lower mainland for quite a while now i think everybody knows surrey it's got its reputation um but a lot of it's come here 
it's here now in Edmonton, in Calgary. It's in other cities across the prairies. I know it's in the eastern cities as well because we talk to all the gang cops out there. But this anatomy of a gangland hit, and I'll throw uh, a link for it uh, on uh, after this uh, episode is posted so people will be able to go take a look for themselves. But just getting into this, what led you to write this article and how'd you kind of compile all this stuff? Well, interestingly, it was uh, a fantastic editor I had at the time who kind of suggested this. And I said, uh, you know, because like in a newsroom, right, you're always kind of walking over to the city desk, which is in the center of a newsroom, and you talk about what you've heard. Oh, I heard this. I heard that. There had been a whole rash of shootings. The gang war was really heating up. Some of them had just been like ridiculously brazen. You know, a United Nations gang member uh, killed outside. He was walking into this giant complex, you know, to work out in his gym, which was in the complex. But there was also like a daycare and little kids were, you know, walking into the daycare with their parents when the shooting happened. Uh, then we had, um, you know, the shooting again of um, a gangster uh, in the United Nations gang, you know, on the doorstep of the airport, right? With all the security at an airport, mm-hmm. this guy's arriving, you know, to go on a vacation in the middle of the pandemic and that car pulls up and starts shooting. You know, again, unfortunately, it wasn't busier at the airport. That was Mother's Day of last year. So there was just so many really brazen murders. And, you know, I'm kind of writing about them one here, then the next day there's another one. And, you know, it it just was really ridiculous. And so this editor said to me, why don't you just sort of break it all down, anatomy of a hit, using the things that I always said I heard, you know, uh, when I'm talking to him at the side of his desk, my editor, that is. And I first thought, oh, well, I can't publish a lot of that because, you know, there'll be legal issues or whatever, or it's going to be from sources and then the more I thought about it, the more I thought, yeah, of course I can put that together. I just have to break it down. So I used information that I had accumulated over a long period of time. Some of it I could document in court cases of, you know, shootings where people had already been prosecuted. And you start to see, you know, kind of all the similarities between how these cases are carried out, um, you know, including gang members who are targeted, being betrayed by their own friends, including uh, these gangs being so sophisticated that they're actually putting tracking devices on vehicles and sending, you know, their own crews out to follow them around for long periods of time. Therefore, they know when they're on their way to the airport, right? Um, How they're getting their guns. You know, I had that sort of element in there as well. Uh, Here in BC, you know, started several years ago that, you know, within an hour of a murder or an attempted murder, you know, police would find a vehicle in a neighboring jurisdiction on fire, right? So they're using stolen cars, they're using stolen plates, they're burning the vehicles. Um, and then the other thing was how the people who are planning the murders very rarely are held to account for them. They're hiring really young hitmen, uh, often from out of province, out of the jurisdiction you know, promising them hundreds of thousands of dollars, sometimes giving them just really expensive jewelry instead. And these kids who maybe aren't on police radar are the ones that are actually taking the risk and in many instances being caught after the fact while the people organizing the murder conspiracies are never held to account. So I tried to include that in this story. And um, yeah, I think it turned out really well. It actually surprised me how uh, the public responded to this story. It was, they, they seemed surprised by the information, 
but I do think it shone a light on sort of the behind the scenes of gangs organizing murders when all people had seen before was sort of the body lying in front of the mall or on the steps of the airport. Yeah. And that hundred percent true. The, um, what have you seen as like an effective strategy? So I know we have Vancouver police has their gang crime unit, uh, their CFSEU. So what are the strategies that you know of that have been effective in dealing with these people? Is it all overt? Is it all covert? Um, there are specific programs. I think it's all of the above, really. I mean, I think that gang education, anti-gang education has really improved over the last decade. You know, there are all kinds of programs in schools uh, now. I I think it's great what we have the end gang um, life program here in BC that's done by Combined Forces Special Enforcement Unit. I would like to see more non-police organized uh, anti-gang education, and that's not to disparage all of the good work that the police are doing. But I think it would also be good to have a message that maybe wasn't coming from police because that might resonate within certain communities where there's more distrust of the police. Well, and I, think um, I agree with that because the I think police are essentially the end of the spectrum, we'll call it, of people that you might deal with. Most people on most days don't deal with the police but you deal with your family, you deal with your employers, you, I don't know, you go through several different institutions, you touch on throughout a day before the police have to deal with you. And I think a lot of things have to have failed you first, including your family, uh, including maybe school, uh, before you end up dealing with us. So for a lot of this to get put on police doesn't seem right. Right. Yeah, no, totally true. But I'm also talking about just the the people here that go into schools and do the education Mm -hmm. are police officers or ex-police officers, right? I would love to see a nonprofit group that was maybe made up of people formerly in gang life that would go in. Uh, Again, the former gangsters that tend to do talks with police in the schools are people who are doing quite well. They've gotten out of the lifestyle. You know, they're kind of these... uh, you know, successful young man who completely changed their life. I think we need to do borrow from the drunk driving programs and have a few people wheeled in in wheelchairs who don't look so good and are facing lifelong consequences because yeah. of being in gangs. Maybe if, you know, young officers like yourself who do a video project interviewing guys in prison. Who, yeah. You know, wouldn't that be more educational for kids to see a movie of guys regretting their life choices? Well, and um, have you actually seen the presentation that Kieran McConnell does, Sergeant? Sergeant yeah, yeah, VPD? yeah. Yeah, and he has. Yeah. Um, I don't, I can't think of the name right now, but the guy that he used to police, who was involved in one of these organized crime groups, um, he tours around with him now and gives those talks. And it's very impactful. And Yeah, yeah, yeah. But okay. I again, it's someone who got out of it, mm-hmm. who's hanging out with the police when he goes into the schools, right? It's impactful, yeah. but we need some programming that has no police involvement, in my opinion, right? Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I'm just saying, like, I think there's models in the U.S., but in addition to that, because I, I'm not saying that all these great educational programs in schools aren't reaching some kids. I think they are. But I think that some of the most at-risk kids are the ones that maybe already have, uh, you know, criminality in the family. 
with an older member of the family, and those kids are not going to probably be reached or helped by programs that are police-led. Yeah, totally. And I mean, who knows their experience with police? It could also be bad from the start. Yeah. So um, I think it's, uh, yeah, it's definitely a community approach, not just, you know, one or two organizations that should be focused on this. Um, But in addition to to the educational component, which is just one of it, you know, we have a real problem uh, in our court system. Uh, we have a real problem in terms of resources, because if you want to get at the top echelon of organized crime, which to me is what where the focus should be. I mean, these are the guys that are really causing all the havoc on the streets and ruining so many young lives. Because, uh, you know, as I mentioned, a lot of the people who are caught up in this and asked to go and you know commit a horrific act like murder might be a teenager, 18, 19, even a young adult, 20, 21. Mm -hmm. They're the ones that end up getting charged. And uh, unfortunately, prosecutors are usually happy to get charges laid against anyone connected to a shooting or a murder. So the investigation generally doesn't continue to get the people higher up the food chain, even the ones that ordered those people to go do it. And I think that's a real flaw in our judicial system. Yeah, uh, I know from our side of things as the police, it, uh, you know, they look at things like budgets uh, and it's how many resources this is going to take, how many people, how many hours is uh, the juice worth the squeeze, so to say. Right. And that's because, you know, especially, you know, I think of one of the murders, it was actually a young hitman that came out from Edmonton to -hmm. kill a Hells Angels member here Mm -hmm. in B.C., and my information was they were hired by the United Nations gang to kill this Hells Angel. Um, and they ended up pleading guilty because they really didn't have much choice. They were caught in the act and they never had to disclose who hired them, right? And you see that time and time again. So uh, it's actually a story that I'd like to do some more work on because um, I recently asked um, the federal public safety minister, you know, do we need RICO style legislation like they have in the United States to go after organized crime? And he's like, no, no, I don't think we do. But there are very few organized crime convictions in Canada, uh, particularly Mm -hmm. of people higher up in, in our criminal organizations. Yeah. No, you're totally right on that. Uh, yeah, if we kind of move, you're talking to some of these younger guys, uh, one of the things I want to touch on was what makes these people join. And part of the narrative that I can't stand seeing out there is just, it's always, Oh, they're, they're marginalized and they can't, uh, they just, you know, don't have any friends and people pick on them. So, you know, now they're in a gang and they're killing people. Um, my own experience in talking to a lot of our guys is, This isn't about, you know, uh, missing out on a family structure or needing that camaraderie. It's money. Like they get a lot of these other things once they're in there, but a lot of it is you're, you're in there because it's, you see it in all the music videos, it's in the culture, it's, uh, it's right there. And now throw money, like you were saying, the jewelry, the cars that these guys can get paid in, um, that's the big reason that a lot of people join. Oh, for sure. I mean, I see uh, there there are marginalized kids that got caught up in this. And, um, you know, there was uh, like the United Nations gang here, which started in the late 1990s and 
has become international in scope, uh, some of the gang leadership would go out and actively recruit refugee kids, right? So these were kids that probably didn't have the support in the school system that maybe they needed. They're people that have maybe seen a lot of violence, you know, if they'd come mm-hmm. to Canada from a refugee camp abroad. And they're, they've got guys who are befriending them, giving them a sense of community, but also paying them a lot of money if they'll go do stuff, mm-hmm. right? So I, I did see, you know, and I still see younger marginalized kids often being used by people in gangs and organized crime groups. But here in BC in particular, you know, we have the classic tale of the middle class gangster, you know, people getting caught up in organized crime while they're university students and doing really well and maybe playing. You know, there was one famous case. The guy was, you know, a a soccer star. He was on the U19 provincial team. He was a star student at UBC. And he still agreed to help with the gang murder for his friend because, well, that was his friend. He was loyal to those guys, right? So, you know, you really, there is a sense of loyalty amongst people. I know this has been the situation here in BC. They grow up together. Some of them go off to university and good jobs, and some of them, you know, become involved in organized crime. And they don't sever their friendship, even though they're headed in, you know, opposing directions, really, right? And yeah. I, um, there's no judgment, right? Now, maybe some think that's a good thing about our younger generation, that they don't judge the choices of their friends. Um, but, you know, they also see their friends making a lot of money. That's the bottom line. I mean, we sort of started off in chatting about, like, here in B.C., you know, the B.C. bud you know, our cannabis, which was superior and growing everywhere for decades before it was legalized, really became the commodity that created the BC gang problem that has exploded over the last 20 years. And, you know, um, our border, the proximity of all the population uh, north of the border, you know, people used to run with hockey bags across the border filled with pot. And they would get paid so much money, mm-hmm. so much money. You know, are you going to go get a minimum wage job at McDonald's or are you going to agree to run some pot across the border? And I'm sure there were guys that thought, oh, I'll just do this a couple of times, right? But the money becomes very addictive, right? Yeah. And then... Well, when they you know, talk those, about... Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, I was just going to say, those guys were getting paid tons of money um, from the U.S. side. It was more than they could deal with. Suddenly, they were being offered cocaine, firearms, Right. Yeah. You know, and this I know because I'm working on a book about this gang history and talking to uh, former members of the UN gang, former members of the Red Scorpions. They were all doing this, right? And it just became bigger and bigger and bigger. A lot of them were still living at home with their parents in very lovely middle class homes in good neighborhoods. Yeah. And they're suddenly major gangs, gang members, right? Well, and when the people, and just kind of back on the the marginalization part. I think a lot of people assume when it, someone says that, well, they're marginalized, that, okay, they were called racist names, now they're in a gang, when it's like you're saying they, they might be from somewhere else or seen a lot of violence, but when they get here, they don't have the proper supports in place. So it's not so much that people are marginalizing them, it's just we don't, maybe the people here don't know how to handle that situation and give them something that they can kind of latch on to and grow into a contributing citizen of the city or the country. Yeah, no, no, that, that, that's so true, right? Um, 
and and also, you know, gangs are to some degree a microcosm of society, and there are all kinds of people that are involved for all kinds of reasons, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I'm sure that's something police are encountering all the time. I mean, you know, the Hells Angels to me is one of the biggest gangs uh, at, at one of the highest levels that we have in BC. But you look at the makeup. You look at the makeup of the Hells Angels. This can be very different mm-hmm. than the makeup of the United Nations gang, um, you know, or um, the FK um, mm-hmm. and that you have in Alberta, right? So, which FKs obviously mirror some of the other gangs that we have here. So they, they are all different, and you see people from all kinds of backgrounds and all kinds of um, socioeconomic groups, mm-hmm. all kinds, like it's across the board, you know, because I do think it's unfair when sort of one community um, gets, get sort of tarred because there's a lot of people killed or arrested from that community at any given time. Right. So, um, you know, it, it's a very widespread problem and therefore the, uh, solutions are going to have to be as wide. And yeah, we have the exact same conversations with the guys that we deal with out here. You know, we'll get some people we know are involved heavily. Maybe there's some of the shot callers and then you just find random guy next sitting next to him and it's like well this has no criminal record uh maybe he's got a student card on him and like well well i'm kicking you out with these people and they'll ask why and it's like well you're associating with them you know we've seen you three four times with this person and we we aren't allowed to tell you all their business because a lot of it's alleged or not proven in court so we can't uh can't tell you but if they're not going to tell you, what do you think we do? You know, we're the gang team. We deal with guns, drugs, and and murder. So maybe all of them or pick one, but you're going to be guilty by association because your your face is always associated to this person. And just like it is for police, it's the same for gang members. They see you sitting with this shot caller. Well, maybe you're a path to getting into that group. Or maybe they see you as a viable target because they can't get to that shot caller. Yeah. No, no, for sure. For sure. Or you just happen to be out with them and there's a shooting and you get killed. Mm -hmm. And we've seen here younger siblings killed, you know, who weren't involved at all because they were in the driveway when, you know, the gunman pulled up. Right. So um, it's complicated, but it is also very, very tragic, you know, uh, and it bothers me even after doing this for all these years when someone says, oh, who cares that that person died? You know, we see a lot of teenagers killed. And uh, because they were somewhat criminalized and involved, but not that involved, yeah. the public has no sympathy for them. And, you know, humans are humans. And our criminal code doesn't say, oh, well, you're allowed to shoot this person because they're in gangs, right? Or they've done some bad things. It, it doesn't say that all of these murders are wrong. And people should be more focused on the people committing the murders rather than what the victim was up to at the time they were shot. Yeah, uh, that sounds good. Um, yeah, it drives me crazy. <laughs> so we're coming up just to an hour here. Uh, I won't keep you uh, much longer. And um, I do want to give you a chance to kind of tell people how to follow you or find your work. So, uh, and if you said you're working on a book, um, is that even, is that close to no. coming to reality? No. <laughs> it's, it's, it should be much closer than it is, right? 
I so don't know. How do people best follow you or uh, see Yeah, you follow me on Twitter, twitter.com, hashtag uh, kbolin. Uh, follow me at vancouversun.com. Um, those would be the two best places. All right, and I'll uh, throw up some of those links just so people can find you once we get this up and posted. Um, but uh, yeah, thank you for coming on today. Hang on the line. I'm going to stop the recording and um, we'll definitely have to chat again soon. Excellent.